Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, November 25th, 2021. Happy Thanksgiving to all of our friends south of the border. Enjoying your turkey dinner, enjoying the start to the holidays. So from us to you, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And hey, save us a piece of pumpkin pie at the very least. We're big fans. We're big fans of the pumpkin pie. So we can't enjoy it today, but we're there with you in spirit. But paradise of Dubai, Mr. Mark Hamilton. How are you, sir? That that looks like a big sunny grin. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm doing well, and I could absolutely do with a piece of pumpkin pie. And I, I don't know if I shared this on the podcast before, but I always hated pumpkin pie. And I went to a Thanksgiving dinner years ago, and I had to pick up a pumpkin pie from Whole Foods on the way. But I, I was so angry that I had to pay Whole Foods money for a pumpkin pie that I insisted that I would eat some. I wasn't going to let everyone else enjoy it, and I fell in love with it. So now I'm a big pumpkin pie advocate and i think it's more of an american thing but certainly people up here in october definitely uh definitely integrate it into their uh, thanksgiving dinner and just on that note as well i think we would be remiss if we miss this but people ask us all the time about when should we buy f1 merch what's good pricing are there ever sales um did a little bit of a peek last night. It looks like almost all of the teams have some really aggressive Black Friday sales now. So it's a great opportunity for the teams to clear out their 2021 merch ahead of the 2022 season. But if you're looking for anything, Alfa Romeo right now, 50% off everything. Alpine up to 50% off. Aston Martin has 40% off everything on their website. I looked at the Mercedes site, heavy discounts across the board as well. Red Bull up to 50% off select items. Williams has everything on their site on sale. And as as usual, Ferrari has no discounts at all. But if you are looking to grab some F1 merch, again, maybe some Christmas gifts now is definitely a good time to do it. Yeah, I mean, Ferrari not putting any on th- anything on sale is just peak Formula One, um, shall we say, snootiness. <laughs> That's actually kind of, uh, kind of funny. But yeah, I mean, definitely go uh, check it out. Uh, this is about as good as it's going to get uh, all year long. So you might as well jump in on some uh, deals if, uh, if you got some spare cash. All right. Well, Mark, first of all, before we get into the, the, the show itself, we could know in as uh, short or soon as nine days from now who the 2021 Formula One World Drivers Champion is if everything goes Max's way at, uh, at Jeddah at the Saudi Grand Prix. And that is uh, just amazing. I mean, there, there's only two races left, but that's a, a little bit of a reality check. Absolutely. And I I know that from a championship standing perspective, they're only separated by eight points, but absolutely, despite the fact that the momentum appears to be with Lewis and appears to be with Mercedes right now, an awful lot still has to go right for Mercedes and for Lewis to win this title. Lewis really has to win both of those races because I don't see any world where Max suddenly makes mistakes or they suddenly encounter some reliability issues. But you're right, we've, we've been enjoying this championship now for six, seven, eight months. It's been a bit of a grind at times. 
sometimes it's been thrilling at others. But in as short as nine days, we may know who the champion is. And of course, I am praying that that is not the case because <laughs> I need the championship to be decided the following week in Abu Dhabi so I can report live. And I still know how we're going to do that. Maybe I'll live stream from the track. But uh, yeah, we could have a champion decided in as soon as nine days from today. That that is amazing. I mean, it, it's just so funny how quick and uh, the season has gone. But at the same time, it seems like an awfully long time ago. If you you really think back to the first race of the year at Bahrain, I mean, that was the first time that we saw Lewis and Max have a, a little bit of. Um, well, it wasn't really an incident. I mean, Max went wide. Uh, he exceeded track limits. He had to give the position back. But it was kind of a taste of things to come. And that theme has kind of. It's, it's kind of perpetuated itself through the season. It's crescendoed and peaked a couple of times and, uh, well, still everything to play for with two races to go. I've had a few people reach out to me over the course of the last couple of days as well with reminders about Baku. And if you, if you don't recall Baku, and I'm sure you do, that was the race where Max had that very scary tire failure, DNF, yep. didn't score any points on the restart. Lewis commits an unforced error in a position where he could possibly have captured 25 points. So the reality is, you know, Max is up by eight points, but had Hamilton not committed that unforced error and closed out the win in that race, he could be up by 17. And I know that was early in the season, but I remember you and I remarking that, hey, we could be reflecting back on this moment as, as a deciding moment within the championship. And of course, it, it hasn't decided anything yet, mm -hmm. but it could be. And I think just like we look back and Matt Lewis fans look back at Malaysia in 2016 when Hamilton had that engine failure and they rue that that's where the championship was lost. If Max does win, I'm sure that Lewis fans, the Mercedes fans will probably reflect back on Baku and think, hey, that's where this championship was ultimately decided was in that moment. You know, it's, it's kind of funny to think that a race that was only, what, about sixth, seventh on the calendar? I mean, it was it was a long, long time ago now. I mean, it may Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I mean, it won't be as a dramatic uh, kind of incident. I mean, it's dramatic when it happened, but I mean, in context compared to, to 2016, when uh, Lewis had that uh, engine failure in Malaysia, there was still, what, three races to go after that or something like that? Three, four, something like that. I mean, it came at that uh, that, that really, really crucial point. And then, I mean, fr from there on out, I mean, uh, Lewis was really uh, behind the eight ball even more. And, 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 and Nico, from that point, was, he was basically just managing the, the car home, just scoring the points that he needed, not getting his nose dirty, not risking the car in any sh way, shape or form, and, and just making Lewis do all the work. I mean, it came down to a, an exciting finale in, in Yas, but um, yeah, who knows? There, there's still plenty of racing and, you know, I am so looking forward to this uh, track at Jeddah next weekend. I mean, when, when you see some of the simulations and it just, it, it I mean, I can't wait to see what it's like for, you know, with like the, the cars on that. I mean, just from, from a gaming point of view, I can't believe that this hasn't been included in the 2021 Formula One game. It just looks like a blast to drive even for, for a gamer. Absolutely. I completely agree. It looks like something that was designed for a video game. It's, it's a little bit surreal that this is going to translate into a real brick and mortar and aggregate track. Yeah. Um, kudos, obviously, to the race organizers for bringing this together. I think there was a lot of concern over the last couple of months that this maybe isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. It looks like, at least from a race operations perspective, they're going to be good. And we're obviously going to have cars on that track a week, actually less than a week from today, six days from now, and we're going to start recording <laughs> some times in 
did free practice one and free practice two. So we'll see how it goes. I, again, I think obviously it's a new track to the drivers. I think what's going to be a little bit unpredictable is the grip. Like obviously we haven't had a situation where we've had a lot of tires running over that aggregate. Is it going to be slippery? Is it going to be slidey? Are the drivers going to be very cautious? So I'm going to be very curious to see what the feedback from the drivers is after those initial free practice sessions on the Friday, because I want to get a sense if they're confident out there. I want to get a sense if they are taking it a little bit more cautiously. It'll be interesting to know, but we got a good week until we can hear from the drivers. Oh yeah, totally. I, I think it's going to be very much uh, like we saw in Turkey last year when they resurfaced the, the, the track at Istanbul Park there. But I mean, the big difference between uh, Jeddah and Istanbul is that after they resurfaced the track, I mean, they had all that inclement weather that uh, washed anything that was on the track. And, you know, you had all the oil and the grease and everything that just is just normal for fresh uh, pavement anyways and made it, uh, uh, you know, really, really uh, slippery. So, I mean, at least from, you know, that to that point of view, I mean, being in Saudi Arabia, being in the desert, being where it's warm and hot and sunny, that, uh, you know, the, the odds that it, it was, there's going to be rain in the next week is virtually nil. And uh, I, I think that uh, over the course of the weekend, that obviously as they get used to the track, as they, they put more rubber down on it, that the, the, the times are just going to get faster and faster and faster. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing this track in action. But, you know, talking about the championship itself, Max, this is interesting. Max is the 47th Formula One driver to have a shot at winning the championship. And when you think about it, all the dynasties that uh, you have in Formula One with the Senna's, the, the, the Schumacher's, the, you know, all, all these great names, the Fangio's, that with 71 championships nearly under our belts, that there's more than 50% of those have been, you know, 47 drivers have had a chance to win one. I mean, it's not like there's been a different one every year, but I mean, when you look at all these championships that multiple world champions like, like Lauda, Hamilton, um, uh, Senna, Prost, Fangio, all these guys that won multiple world champions that, that, that this many different, uh, this such a large number of drivers have had a shot at it is, uh, is an interesting statistic. It's definitely an interesting statistic. And I think oftentimes we reflect on those that have won chips or won multiple chips. But mm -hmm. I think if you look back, look at Felipe Massa in 2008. This this is yeah. somebody who had a championship clutched away from him in the seconds after he finished the, the, the finish line in Brazil. But it is interesting that there have been that many drivers that have had a championship within their reach. And Max obviously now has a championship within his reach. I don't want to say it's his to lose, but he certainly has an advantage being up eight points going into the last couple of races, but it is startling that so many different people, and maybe it's not, but it maybe speaks to the fact that historically there's maybe been a little bit more parity than we give the sport credit for, despite the fact that we've had periods of dominance with, of course, Michael Schumacher and, and Lewis Hamilton. You know, I, I just wanted to get your take on Max's uh, comments uh, this uh, th this week that uh, winning the championship is the, the the final goal, as he put it, and anything after that, any multiple championships don't really matter. W what do you make of that? Because you know, maybe I'll go, I'll, I'll give you something to think uh, about that. If Ma Max wins the championship this year or next year or five years down the road, whatever it is, I mean, obviously this guy has uh, what it takes to become a champion. It's it's just a question of uh, of when. And I don't know if this is one of these uh, these comments that can be, 
I guess it could be interpreted in a couple of ways, but I think that um, when you look where Max is, he's still trying to establish himself as one of the greats in the sports. Obviously, uh, you know, he's only 24 years old. Lewis is 35. He's got seven chips uh, already going for eight, which would make him the out and out goat, undisputed. And uh, that, that's it's he's obviously in legacy mode, right? I mean, I, I still think that the desire is there for from from Lewis. I mean, we, we we've talked about it before where his motivations are, but. I think that Max, if he won it, I don't think that necessarily means he would pull a Nico Rosberg and hang up his gloves and helmet and walk away. But I think that uh, anything after that is almost like for him for like legacy building. I think he'd still be focused. I think he'd still be, I, I think he'd still be as intensely motivated to do Formula One up until the point that he would just get up and, and walk away. And that's, I think, is the big question. Would he stay in Formula One for, you know, for another decade or till his late thirties or early forties, you know, like, like Raikkonen or Alonso or any of the other guys that have really had long, long, long careers in formula. And I'm not so convinced. I think that one of, one of these days that Max would just kind of think, you know, I, I've done everything I needed to do here and I'm going to go and just do whatever's next, whatever that might be. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine because I don't know what Max does when he's not driving a formula one car, to be honest. I completely agree, and I, I'm equally as confused that if he wasn't focused and dialed in on Formula One and Formula One prep 24-7, I don't necessarily know what else he would have to do. But at the same time, I was equally as surprised when Nico Rosberg won a title and, and walked away. And I certainly don't think, and I wouldn't suggest for a second, that Max is positioning himself to leave the sport if he wins the championship this year. But no, I did think it was interesting that he made these comments about the fact that, hey, my final goal is a championship. And you know, I think the challenge sometimes is we're, we're colored as North American sports fans because the culture and identifying greatness within North American sports has changed so much in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, really accelerated by folks like Michael Jordan, where, hey, winning one championship, winning one chip is not enough anymore. It's how many chips did you get? Jordan mm -hmm. obviously has six, and LeBron has four, and Kobe has five. And if you look at the NFL, you can talk about the greats, but it's not so much the greats as in having won a single championship, but how many championships have you won? And I think sometimes now we're, we're starting to talk about Formula One in that sense as well, where hey, being a world championship is great or being a world champion is great, but how many world championships did you win if you want to be on that Mount Rushmore of the all-time greats? And I think it would be a shame for for obviously Max to win a title and then change his approach to the sport or leave the sport entirely. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. But I do agree with his comment that I think the pressure would be very different if mm -hmm. he can win a title, if he can overcome all of the I don't think that he's really overcoming any odds, but if he if he manages to win a title and he does so ahead of Lewis Hamilton and that incredible Mercedes beast, I think that relieves a tremendous amount of pressure. He is a world champion. Nobody can take that away from him. But then he maybe likely finds renewed energy and and incentive and interest in, in competing subsequent to that anyways. But I think he's probably in the zone right now where there's this tremendous pressure to win a title. And I think that pressure is not going to go away until he gets that title. And I think pressure mm -hmm. will return, but it will be a different type of pressure because nobody can ever take away from the fact that, hey, you are a world champion, Max 
Verstappen. Totally. And I think that if uh, Max is able to pull it off and win this championship in, in 2021, I think it has to go down as one of the all-time great championship Agreed. wins in the sport. Agreed. Because he's facing Lewis, who is still obvious, obviously very much in uh, the, the, the prime of his career. He's had the best car, uh, certainly over the last uh, number of years, certainly over the last couple of races. I mean, uh, that that uh, W12 has just been at a different level the last two races. So, I mean, that's uh, posed another difficult for Max, as you outlined so nicely, there was that DNF in Baku because of the tire tire failure. But uh, still, I mean, it, it's been a great battle to watch and to be that guy that 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 finally rests the the drivers' championship away from a Mercedes driver will be notable due to the fact that nobody's been able to do it pre-2014, or since 2014, I should say, and uh, before this uh, turbo-hybrid era. And uh, it would be, it would almost be fitting, considering that uh, the, these cars literally just only have a couple of hundred miles left to run before they're, you know, consigned to the, the museums and car collectors' uh, collections of the world, uh, for those people who are actually in the market to, to afford a Formula One car for their collection, that is. And uh, then we're into an all-new, uncharted, territory that's all brand new so it's going to be very very exciting to watch anyways time for a quick break we'll come back on the flip side still plenty more to talk about so don't go away we'll be back in just a moment passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And I really, really wish that I'd uh, made a quick stop to, to go down to the store just uh, just now. I, I'm sure that even though it's uh, not uh, Thanksgiving up here in Canada today, I'm sure that uh, there, there must be pumpkin pie available. There's got to be a couple at least in stock at any decent uh, grocery store. And now I must admit, I'm, I'm really quite uh, cra- craving one, you know. So anyways, let's talk about Formula One. Let's not talk about uh, comfort foods and things like that, because that's just not going to end anywhere good. Because then as soon as we finish the show, 
I'm going to go upstairs and binge and <laughs> it's probably not a good to, good idea at this time of uh, night. So next up, so the Spanish Grand Prix is apparently on the cusp of signing a new five-year deal with Formula One to keep the Spanish Grand Prix at uh, the Catalan, sorry, the Catalan circuit of Barcelona. Lovely place, lovely city, wonderful circuit. Maybe not the most exciting track on the, 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 the calendar, but certainly a wonderful place to go and watch a race. Certainly a, a world-class city to go and visit. So I'm, I'm excited to, to, to hear this. I mean, this used to be the traditional home of winter testing. And I think that's part of the reason why racing sometimes here can be a little bit predictable because I think that most of the drivers know this track literally inside and out and they could drive it with their eyes closed at times. But, uh, you know, Spanish Grand Prix, I think is an important one to keep on the, uh, on the calendar. And I'd be happy to see them extend for another number of years. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add on this other than the fact that just two years ago, it looked like this track was going to be gone permanently and they had a one-year reprieve and then they had another one-year reprieve because of the pandemic. But it's funny what the presence of two world-class Spanish drivers in the sport does to stimulate interest. And I think obviously... Carlos Sainz was around when it looked like we were going to lose this track, but I think the return of Fernando Alonso has done an awful lot to cement the interest of the local government and the race organizers in committing to a long-term deal. So I agree with you. It's it's good news. I'd like to see these traditional tracks on the circuit. The other good news, and this hasn't been openly reported yet, but it sounds like the the track organizers have committed, committed to not significant, but some not so insignificant upgrades to the track as well. So it looks like they're going to be doing some work on a couple of the corners to reprofile them in the effort of increasing overtaking and some of the the logistical natures or aspects of the track, including garages and pit entry and things like that will be upgraded as well over the course of the next couple of years. So we're going to keep Spain around for a couple of years. Why not? 10% of the drivers on the grid are Spanish. And I think we're going to get some upgrades as a byproduct. So good news story. Definitely. You know, uh, I, I think one of the things that really worked for the Spanish Grand Prix this year was the fact that I think they restored what was a corner 10 or 11 or something like at the back end of the circuit. They restored it to its uh, original uh, layout. And I thought that uh, really made it uh, a little bit better around uh, as you go through that last series of corners before you get to the, sh- uh, the chicane before start finish and the pit entry. But I'm glad to hear that uh, they're going to, to reprofile some of these corners as well, which, you know, is, is, is a trend that we're seeing at other tracks uh, that, uh, that definitely, have, yeah, that, definitely, you know, Albert Park in Melbourne is another one. And sadly, we didn't get a chance to see that this year. So really looking forward to seeing that. We saw what they did. Uh, I mean, it had been obviously 30, almost 40 years since uh, Formula One last went to, to Sanford in Holland. But I mean, the banking that they did to, to reprofile that corner was uh, was pretty cool. That worked. And really looking forward to seeing uh, the, the changes at Yas Marina in a couple of weeks uh, as well. And also, like I say, I mean, Barcelona really is uh, from a fan's uh, perspective that if you can take one of the shuttle buses from the, the, the city to the track itself, you know, you get dropped off, and I mean, you're you're literally probably an eighth of a mile from the main gates at uh, just at the main grandstand uh, by start finish, and it, it doesn't really get any better than that. Uh, so, anyhow, that uh, might be uh, you know one of these ones we save for a future race or for a future show of uh, races uh, that uh, you know that you should go and visit. Anyways, talking about Spanish drivers, Fernando Alonso, remember him? 40-something years old, two world championships, back in Formula One, scored a podium last week at the Qatar Grand Prix. He is arguably, well, I guess it depending on your point of view, he's definitely a very polarizing figure. You either love him or hate him. Um, could you classify him as one of Formula One's all-time stars? I guess maybe that is dependent on... 
you know, my my previous comment of uh, either you love Nando or you hate Nando, <laughs> but uh, certainly, I mean, he has had a lot of uh, success in Formula One, won two world championships a very long time ago. But uh, he's um, rocked some boats, burnt some bridges, but he does, he says he doesn't actually feel shortchanged or disappointed by the fact that he got his championship so early in his career and it's been a long time since he's had any level of success. I mean, his third in Qatar was his first podium since Hungary in 2014 when he was still driving for Ferrari. Yeah, Fernando, I, I, I like the way that you put that, and I'm just collecting my thoughts on this one. <laughs> it, it, it is funny because he does have a really, really rich base of fans, and, and not, not surprisingly, perhaps, a lot of those fans are folks that have been around for 10 or 15 years and were there during the glory days of that 05 and 06 Renault title. I think, obviously, one of the things that colors people's perception of him is he, he left Renault, went to McLaren, and that was a really ugly experience. He went back to Renault. Um, during his time with Renault, they were colored by Crashgate. Of course, the McLaren team were colored by Spygate. Um, he does go to Ferrari at one point where he manages to come close a couple of times. But I think that the comment here is, you know, he did win a couple of chips. He won in 05 with Renault. He won again in 06 with Renault. He came third in 2007 in that very, 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 I would say, choppy year with McLaren. That said, he still only finished a point back from the championship. 2010, he finished second. 2012, he finished second. That was an incredibly, incredibly close championship. And again, 2013, he finished second. So he... In these three years alone, he finished, I think, maybe just eight points out from potentially three more titles. So I think the debate will always be, did he win as many championships as he should have? Um, did he secure as many chips as were available to him? But obviously, he has a loyal base of fans, and a lot of those were folks that were around and remember him winning. Because for most of the folks that are joining Drive to Survive now, either this is their first glimpse of him on the track or they caught the very tail end of that McLaren period, which mm -hmm. was obviously a, a little bit dicey and and not necessarily a particularly friendly relationship. I think it was probably just more hostile than anything. So for a lot of people, hearing about Fernando Alonso, this may be the first time they've heard a little bit about him. But again, he did win a couple of chips. Curiously, he actually announced his departure from Renault in 2006 before he'd actually won that championship. So even before he'd won the 06 championship, he'd announced that he was going to go to McLaren. So he does win the 06 championship, knowing that he's out, goes to McLaren, finishes a point out in the championship. Obviously, that situation with the rookie Hamilton didn't work out. The team was in disarray, and he goes right back to Renault. That doesn't work out. Renault ultimately exits the sport, and he makes the move over to Ferrari, where he finishes runner-up three times. But obviously, a tremendously talented driver, and I thought it was really, really great to see him on the podium last weekend at what, 42 years of age, sorry, 40 years of age. I think he's my age. So yeah, he's probably got a couple of years left. At least I think that's what he's hoping. Well, that's uh, the, the thing he said on the Beyond uh, the Grid podcast that he wants to stay active in Formula One after next year. He says that uh, he's maybe not as... Um, uh, concerned if Alpine isn't uh, super competitive uh, next year, but I mean, what else is he uh, really going to to say? I mean, th there, I think he still has uh, something to offer the team. I, I don't know if there's anyone else that they could necessarily put in that car that would be an immediate uh, upgrade. I mean, he still shows pace. I mean, he was uh, obviously every you know very good in Qatar. I mean, he showed uh, in those opening laps there that you know he still got that killer instinct. I mean, just look how he pushed uh, Max wide there at turn three or turn two or whatever it was right on the opening lap. So I mean. 
you know, the, the, that aggressiveness is uh, still there, which you, you obviously need in a driver. But I mean, the thing is, and um, this is not a knock on Fernando. I mean, it happens to all of us that uh, as, uh, as you age, your reaction times and physically you just start to slow down. And I mean, he still might be a phenomenally athletic and talented uh, person, but when, you know, you have to react literally in nanoseconds in, in Formula One, just that, uh, that, that natural aging just at, at some point is going to catch up with him, right? But uh, certainly, I mean, he's a fascinating case study. I mean, we, we could probably rip off a, a number of shows dedicated to the the, the career of uh, for, uh, Fernando Alonso. And let's not forget, I mean, he's won uh, Le Mans, what, tw- twice already? I don't know if he's... Oh, great point. You know, great I, point. I don't know if he's maybe given up on that uh, pipe dream to win the Triple Crown and uh, and and try and win the 500 as well. I mean, he, he gave a good uh, go at it. I mean, he had a very good run there in 2017. And then uh, retired. It was less than fifty laps to the finish. I mean, he and I, he was still right up there in the top of the running order. So I mean, he had a good uh, crack at it. And I mean, you can't uh, fault him uh, for 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 trying. Anyways, uh, let's move along now. And everybody's favorite Russian oligarch, <laughs> and uh, this is Nikita Mazepin's uh, father. Um, he is obviously the the head of Urukali, which is a big uh, Russian uh, chemical uh, company, and obviously the uh, the chief sponsor of uh, of Haas. And uh, they've uh, talked about you know increasing their. Uh, their stake in the team. And this is a uh, Dimitri Mazepin, uh, Nikita's father. And uh, this is uh, just a way to incentivize the staff members over what's going to be a very, very intense and difficult uh, season uh, next year. I mean, there's a number of interesting quotes that have, uh, you know, that uh, uh, Dmitry Mazepin uh, made uh, this uh, this week. And uh, I, I think that, uh, where is it? I've got in my notes here somewhere that uh, I wanted to just point it out because it was here. Okay. So he says, uh, quote, we have big ambitions in motorsport and we have had an unsuccessful attempt to buy a Formula One team. It is still a possibility for us. It is not related to Nikita, but it is uh, determined by our long-term plans. On the contrary, we want to expand our presence in F1, end quote. So he didn't really outline what it was that uh, that he's going to do to try and incentivize and keep uh, the other team members at Haas um you know, motivated over what's going to be a very difficult season. I mean, he was very, I thought, very gracious in his comments uh, about what the team has achieved uh, this year. I mean, obviously, neither Nikita Mazepin or Mick Schumacher have really done anything of note, and Nikita has made more negative headlines than positive ones uh, this year, sadly, and even before the year started. But I mean, his dad was a, I, I thought that he was quite polite about it, uh, saying that, he, quote, we are, firstly, we are grateful to the team uh, that uh, we found a mutual interest in entering into this kind of agreement. The team has been working hard, but we see big opportunities, which we can realize through joint efforts to achieve a higher result next year, end quote. So, I mean, uh, it's uh, been well known that Haas has been focusing on their 2022 car and has uh, basically stopped development um, of the, 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 the current car. And so who knows, are, are they going to get it right? I mean, it's, it's a disappointing team because when they came into Formula One several, oh, quite a while ago now, I mean, it's more than several years ago. I mean, they had some flashes the, the, the first couple of years. I mean, the, the, the investment from the owners just uh, sadly isn't there. And I mean, they've just been on the life support, but it seems that whatever happens with Haas in, in the future to come, that is going to come via the pocketbook of Dimitri Mazepin. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think this is, these are interesting comments. And I think what this really is, is an acknowledgement of the fact that this year they effectively tanked and they didn't tank in the sense that you do in the NBA, but they tanked in the sense that, Hey, we are going to take all of our limited resources and invest everything into the 2022 car. The Haas car that we are seeing this year is the 2021 car end of story. They're putting nothing into it. It hasn't been improved since last year whatsoever. The only changes have been those to align with the aero regulations. So I think if you work in the factory, if you're a mechanic, if you work in sales, it's probably really tough week after week to know you have zero chance of improving. You have zero chance of winning. You have zero chance of scoring points. And I think even if you're not necessarily a championship contender, having a good weekend and scoring some points and getting a surprise finish and breaking through to Q2, I think these are the type of things that energize your factory staff, the, the folks back at the office. And I think this team's enjoyed none of that this year. Um, and I, I think for that reason, it's probably been a bit dispiriting to be a part of that organization. And I think equally as much, it's been really challenging to see the lack of performance and pace out of one of your two drivers. So obviously we don't really know what that car is capable of because we have two rookies driving it. But what we are seeing is a tremendous delta between Nikita and MSC. But maybe next year things improve. Obviously they're going to be coming back with a completely reworked and redesigned car. And maybe they're in a position where they can start scoring some points. But I would say incentive plan or not, the one thing that would energize people within this team is success. Whether that's breaking through to Q2, whether that's scoring a seventh and eighth and ninth place finish with some surprising points, give them something to rally about, give them something to be excited about. I don't know, maybe everybody in the team understands the philosophy and that this year was effectively going to be a write-off and they were going to tread water until 2022. I don't know. Maybe they understand that and everyone's on board with that vision. I just, I can't imagine it's easy to go through the paces of a Formula One season knowing that you're never going to score points and you're never going to break out a Q3. You know, it's interesting uh, too. I mean, uh, you know, his comments again says you know, saying that uh, as sponsors, they want to be more involved with the team. I'm not sure how that works unless maybe Dimitri's going to run down to the local McDonald's in Kannapolis and get burgers for everybody. But, you know, I, I mean, it, it is interesting to, to hear the comments from like a, obviously a title sponsor like that. And obviously, I mean, he still has designs on owning a Formula One team. It sounds like maybe a bit of the bitterness of losing out in that uh, bid to take over. Force India that was snatched away from him by Lawrence Stroll and his consortium a couple of years ago. I mean, that still has to sting. That's still got to be on, uh, you know, on his mind. And and I still think at some point that um, I can't believe that uh, that Gene Haas is going to hang on to this team forever because he thinks at some point that they're going to be a, a big dog in Formula One. I still think that if the right offer comes along, that uh, that Gene will be more than happy to take a check from somebody and and walk away from it. But, you know, that's just me. All right, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about those guys that didn't count or discount any of their merch for Black Friday, and that's a Ferrari. So we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, well, welcome back to the show. Mattia Bonato, team principal at Ferrari, said uh, that uh, said this week that their main goal for 2021 was not third place in the Constructors' Championship. And again, this is very, very interesting language coming from the the higher ups at uh, Ferrari. That I, I think that the, the the messaging and the tone that they've had over the past. <clears throat> year and a half to two years has remained very consistent, very, I wouldn't say that um, they're, they're lowballing their expectations, but very measured in what they are, are planning or what their goals and their, their aims are, because they're obviously still a little ways off from Red Bull. They're still a ways off uh, from uh, Mercedes. This is not the Ferrari that was you know, contending potentially for championships in the past uh, several years and uh, threatening and challenging Mercedes on a, a regular basis. But um, it was interesting. So um, Matias, uh comments are as follows, quotes, all of our efforts were focused on the car for 2022 from the start. We never compromised on that. So it never crossed our minds to try at any point to penalize 2022 in favor of 2021, not even a view in the battle for third place, end quote. And again, you know, maybe that is similar. It, it's a bit of a twist on what they've said uh, before. It's uh, it, it's similar, I mean, um, to the fact that, well, I mean, it's identical to the fact that they said they were never going to compromise the development of a next year's car but i mean the the overall sort of theme is that you know we still expect to be a couple years off from uh, winning races and challenging for podiums and championships and all that sort of stuff that talk has kind of disappeared a little bit and i think maybe themselves are they're they're realizing probably what everybody else does and they should have a better indication (laughs) than you know what we do on the outside is the fact that next year is just this big unknown and we really won't know until we get a race or two under our belts or maybe three four whatever it is what the pecking order is who's got it right, who's got it wrong, and who has some potential, and who's screwed for 2022. This messaging is is exactly consistent with what we've been hearing from Ferrari since the end of last year. They were very clear during the offseason to level set and calibration, calibrate the expectations of the media in that we do not expect to win in 2021. Winning is not our ambition in 2021. We are building towards 2022. So similar in, in a way to, to Haas. Now, that said, they've obviously been able to bring a better, more competitive package to the car. And they probably had some understanding that they were going to be more competitive than they were indicating to the media they would be. But I think it was smart from their perspective that administratively, logistically, they spoke very cautiously about what their expectations were going to be for the season. If they were to come out during the offseason and say, hey, we expect to finish third in a transition year and that doesn't happen, well, that opens them up for criticism. I think what they've been doing here is very measured. It's the right way of addressing the analysts, of addressing the media. Hey, you know what? We're not building for 2021. We're building for 2022, 2023. This year has been a nice surprise, um, and I've enjoyed seeing it. And I also believe that this is a team who maybe not even sneakily, but could very much be a, a contender next year because they seem to have, with their most recent engine upgrades, they seem to have dialed in a really great power unit. And that's important because at the end of the year, that power unit's going to be frozen, and that's what they're going to have to carry through to at least the end of 2025. But I think their strategy during the offseason was very good, which was to downplay um, downplay play their own internal expectations because they didn't want to take on the criticisms that could come with that if they don't meet those in a weird transition year that is 2021. 
You know, it's also interesting too. Some of the other quotes from uh, Mattia Bonato uh, this week is that um, <laughs> it, it, with the um, all the efforts that they put into the 2022 car and everything that uh, that, that they're working on, I mean, it's obviously been a strain because they're in between. I mean, you know, they, they're they're still racing with this car that they have. They're still looking ahead to the future, and uh, Mattia was uh, pretty blunt and pretty upfront in saying that he just can't wait for this uh, season to end because it has just been very very difficult and uh, doing these uh, you know trying to have one foot in in both worlds but hey that's no different than the other nine formula one teams everybody's going through it but uh, guys just hang on there for a little while longer you're you're almost there and i mean we're, we're still so excited all of us just in general to see what uh, what comes out uh, ne- next year i mean as excited as i am to watch these last couple of races and see what happens in the championship is max going to win is lewis going to win who's going to win the constructors uh, you know part of me wants to like skip all you know, fast forward to two months from now, as these new cars uh, get released, as they they go to winter testing, as we get ready to go to um, well, uh, get get racing again in twenty twenty two. It's it's exciting, but hey, you know we're almost there. Okay, and another Ferrari story is that twenty two year old Robert Schwartzman is uh, going to go and have a test with Haas F one at uh, the Abu Dhabi rookie test that's upcoming at the end of the season. So he was uh, Mick Schumacher's two, uh, teammate at Prema Racing in Formula Two last season. He finished fourth in the championship with four wins, and he's third in the Formula Two standings this year. He was also the twenty nineteen. F3 championship, and he will get behind the, the wheel of the, the Haas at the rookie test that will take in the week after the the Abu Dhabi, uh, sorry, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, pardon me, in just a couple of uh, weeks from now. You know, you know, just trust me to uh, stumble over the words there. Anyways, yeah, your thoughts on uh, Schwartzman's opportunity to get a test in a Formula One car? Yeah, wins the F3 championship in 2019, finishes fourth last year, currently trending third this year. He he's tested a Formula One car before. I think he tested the 2020 uh, Ferrari car a, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear now that it's unlikely that there's a clear pathway for him to find his way into Formula One. I think it's nice that he's going to get a test. And I, again, I think you and I are big advocates for getting young drivers into Formula One cars for all of the reasons that that's good, whether it's just giving them reps, giving them exposure, um, providing exposure to the fans of young up and coming drivers who maybe don't tune into F2 and F3. Um, I just, I feel a a little bit like this is the end of the the song for him. You don't get to have three or four shots normally at at Formula 2, and he hasn't won a Formula 2 title. He's not going to do it this year. He did get that F3 chip, but I would suggest this might be the last that we see of him in terms of testing. Mm -hmm. Maybe he ends up in a simulator type position or a test driver position, but I think that clear pathway that we maybe thought he had to an F1 seat as recently as two years ago seems to have evaporated. You know, it's, it, it is kind of going back to this conversation that we've had before, like uh, with other drivers like Nick DeFries, right? I mean, there's such a good crop of, uh, of young drivers in Formula One right now. And just uh, the, the fact that the, the, a Formula One seat is such a scarce commodity. I mean, there's, there's only 20 of them available. They don't really change so very often. And, you know, the, the window to get into one of these Formula One cars is so, so small. I mean, you look at um, Antonio Giovinazzi at uh, Alfa Romeo. I mean, he's been in that car for a couple of years now. I mean, he's out at the end of the year in favor of Guan Yu Zhou, who's going to come in uh, next year and take his seat alongside Valtteri Bottas. I mean, uh, you know, and I think that Giovinazzi's uh, kind of made these comments that uh, that... that 
there, there's obviously a bit of bitterness there because he feels like he's he's maybe losing a seat to, to a guy that's uh, got a fair amount of sponsorship money and things like that. But I mean, the window to get into you know, a Formula One car is so small. You just, uh, you know, it's it's almost a little bit of um, of luck if you're maybe not one of these sort of predestined, um, you know, what, what do you want to call it? Uh, almost these virtuosos that, uh, that that seem predestined to get into the sport at one way or another. That these other guys that are also very very competent and very very good racing drivers. That if it just doesn't line up with, uh, you know, the stars don't align for lack of a better way to put it. You know that that window just uh, it, it comes or it doesn't come or if it does it just doesn't last very long and you know their their tenure in formula one is very very short definitely it is interesting as well and i i don't think a lot of people probably know but schwartzman is russian just like nikita mazepin just like daniel kiviat and it's interesting because i don't know necessarily a lot about the development programs in that country in terms of motorsports obviously daniel kiviat didn't come from a wealthy family schwartzman's i think upper middle class and obviously nikita mazepin is the son of an oligarch but i'd like to know a little bit more about motorsports development Mm -hmm. in that country to try to understand why we're seeing so many talented young drivers come through those ranks when obviously and we know why it's not necessarily happening from the U.S. There's just countless other motorsports opportunities for young drivers, whether it's Indy or stock car or or something else. But it is curious that Russia seems to be generating uh, a pretty significant stream of young talent across uh, some very different social backgrounds. Uh, as as you mentioned, I mean, one from you know a very very wealthy family, another one upper middle class, and then Danny Kvyat, you know, just uh, like like you say, just from a, a normal blue collar working family. I mean, that that's quite a spread of uh, you know quite quite a demographic uh, there. So that's uh, interesting. Okay, uh, next one. This is uh, interesting uh, to talk about. So Aston Martin has headhunted Mercedes Aero Chief, and uh, this uh, fellow's name is Eric Blondie. He's French, and he's hey, this is a big, big name that has been lured away from uh, Mercedes to join the operation at Aston Martin. Now, this is not going to be something that happens instantaneously because Mr. Blondine is going to have his customary and traditional gardening leave, meaning that uh, he will not join. Aston Martin until October 2022. I mean, gosh, man, what, whatever happened to giving your two weeks notice and then you go and show up for the new? Oh, that's right. So we work normal jobs where, you know, <laughs> we, we don't get things like gardening leave and all these uh, things like that. But anyways, I mean, joking aside, um, a spokesperson from Aston Martin uh, said earlier this week, quote, we confirm that Eric Blondie will begin working for Aston Martin and Cognizant F1 team next year. His exact start date is not yet convert- confirmed. Confirmed the transition from Mercedes AMG F1 team to ourselves will be an amicable one. End quote. So, Blondine started his uh, career in Formula One at uh, the Italian Wind Tunnel. Fundamental Technologies in 98, moved to Jaguar Racing as an aerodynamist in 2002. He stayed with the team after they changed from Jaguar into um, Red Bull Racing. And he was the head of the uh, aero team before he left there in 2009. And uh, he's uh, been, no, I mean, he's he's been uh, pretty much all over the place. He's also been to Ferrari, joined a Mercedes in 2011 as their principal aerodynamicist. And he 
was promoted to Mercedes' uh, chief aerodynamicist in September 2017. So, I mean, this is a, a very, very smart fellow, a very experienced fellow in Formula One, who's worked for some of the biggest teams, uh, obviously. And uh, Lawrence Stroll is uh, obviously, and, and uh, Otmar Safnar, our team principal, are very excited that uh, Eric Blondin will be uh, joining the team. And, you know, how do you work in the interim? I, I guess you just, uh, it's almost like that anticipation for Christmas, knowing that uh, that, that this, yeah, the big shiny, uh, you know, present is going to show up at uh, some point. But I mean, this, you know, joking aside, this is a crucial big signing for, for Aston Martin. Absolutely. Especially given their aero design deficiencies this year, but this is a guy who, like you said, joined the Mercedes team during the V8 era, functioned as the chief, and I always struggle with this word, so forgive me, but he functioned as the chief aerodynamicist. I got there it. There you go. Um, well, actually, no, he was principal, principal aerodynamicist from 2011, so the tail end of that V8 era into, I would say, the third year of the V6 Turbo era, and then coincidentally, he becomes the chief aerodynamicist in 2017, and the reason that's important is that was the year that F1 overhauled their aero regulations. So big tires, big wings. They wanted to create more downforce. They wanted more speed in the corners. They wanted more overtaking. So he was a big part in the backbone of redesigning those Mercedes cars. And if you remember, there was absolutely no hiccups when they transitioned from the 2016 spec cars into the 2017 spec cars. So to your point as well, it just reinforces that Lawrence Stroll is willing to pay whatever it takes to bring the right people over to that Silverstone factory to build a winner. And if not next year or the year after, I know he's talking about, hey, his vision is to have a championship contending team within the next five years. I, I certainly think he's going to to get there with some of the people that he's bringing aboard. You know, it's interesting too, some of the comments, uh, just uh, you know, going back to that, uh, you really nicely pointed out that transition to the, the 2017 regs, which we've seen uh, perpetuated and uh, modified right up to the the, the current day. Uh, but uh, Lewis Hamilton was saying that this week that the W12 is what he calls a monster diva in uh, terms of uh, it being a really, really tricky and fickle car to get the setup just right because the 2017 car, which I guess would, if I do my math right, would be the W9, was the, the the car that Total Wolf termed or coined the original diva, and that one was was also uh, difficult to, to to set up initially. But uh, the, this year's car is uh, proving uh, to be uh, even more so. I mean, hard to believe, uh, you know, considering how well that car has run, especially over the last uh, couple of races. But uh, very interesting, like I say, a very crucial uh, appointment for uh, Aston Martin. Anyway, so let's take uh, another quick break. A couple more things uh, to talk about. Maybe we'll jump into the mailbag if we have a, a little bit of time. Uh, anyways, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And I guess this is a case of better late than never, but uh, shame on us. Mark, please remind everybody about the contest that we have going uh, on right now. We jumped right into the Black Friday sales so you can see where everybody's uh, you know, mentality is. But uh, we are running a contest for our good friend uh, Magnus Greaves over at the raceweekend.com, Race Weekend Magazine. Obviously, we're, we're big fans of the content uh, that they're putting out. Mark, let the good people at home know how they can get My on this. My gosh, what, what a shame on me. We, we put this at the very top of the agenda and then we miss it so <laughs> we have a contest now this contest is closing soon it closes on december 8th we're going to announce it on the subsequent show heading into the yas marina weekend but we are giving away in collaboration with the race weekend team a one-year subscription to race white weekend magazine so that's four copies of that big large format magazine all you have to do to enter is follow us on twitter 
retweet that post and like that post. That's all you need to do. So, so far we only have about 80 entries, which I thought was a little bit disappointing. I thought we would be probably approaching 200, but we haven't had the opportunity to come on the show and, and talk this up too much. Go and find the tweet like it, retweet it, make sure you follow us and you will be automatically entered. And like I said, we're going to be drawing somebody in. My dates are a little bit mixed up because I keep doing this translation between North America time and Middle East time, but we will be doing the drawing somewhere around the 8th or the 9th. Once again, it'll be live during the podcast, just like we did the last one. And if you haven't checked it out, theraceweekend.com, if you want to get a peek at what they do and the great work that they that they uh, they, they put together, it would be uh, worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. And we should point out too that unlike the the last contest that we uh, we ran, uh, we had to limit that one to just North American entries just for logistical uh, reasons. But this one is oh, open yeah, worldwide. Doesn't matter if you're here in Vancouver like me or in Dubai like Mark or anywhere in between or further beyond, you know, get in on it. We will get you uh, set up, hook you up with a, a complimentary subscription to the Race Weekend magazine. Okay, let's move on. Lewis Hamilton says he wants to be what he calls one of the purest of F1 drivers that he can be. So there won't be any questions or doubts about his achievements in Formula One. Uh, the seven-time world champion had to say, quote, it's just how my dad raised me. He said, always do your talking on the track. I was bullied as a kid, both at school, but also on the track, and we wanted to beat them the right way, not by a car falling off or colliding. Then there's no denying that you're better. If you have collisions and you can say, oh yeah, but this happened, this one tactic was that, that this, this driver has. I want to be the purest of drivers through speed, through sheer hard work and determination, so there's no design at the end of what I've accomplished, end quote. Well, I don't think that there's any doubt that Lewis has done all the talking on the track in his Formula One career, but Mark, your thoughts on that comment? Yeah, this was a story that got a lot of play this week. The timing's obviously very interesting, and obviously the the reporter that was asking these questions was framing it in a in a contrast with some of the other great great kind of drivers of all time. I'm not going to make a judgment on whether it is actually I'm going to make a judgment. What the hell? We're podcasters. <laughs> I, I think his career has been relatively unscathed in terms of really significant controversy. And, you know, we talked a lot about this when we've been discussing Michael Schumacher over the course of the last few years. This is a guy that has seven championships, but also a guy who was disqualified from an entire championship in 1997 for intentionally trying to run a competitor off the track. And certainly from a, a Lewis Hamilton perspective, if you want to index the quality of his career from a sportsmanship perspective relative to other drivers, I would have to say he's had a fairly pure, a fairly pure career. Uh, he's been very successful, obviously at McLaren. He's been very successful with this team. And there's no question there are criticisms of him, but in terms of contributing to the sport off the track, in terms of lobbying for social justice and social causes, he's done that. And equally as much, he has done everything asked of him on the track. And certainly there's that ongoing criticism that, Hey, he should be winning championships because he's driving the best car. But even when you look at how he's performed versus somebody a teammate that's driving an equivalent car, he's consistently outperformed them. And even in 2016, he maybe wins that championship, if not for that that engine failure in, in Malaysia. So I like these comments. I, I think he's sincere. I think there's certainly some truth to this. And I don't look at his career and think that there's any very specific black mark that we're going to reflect on in 20 or 30 years when we're talking about the all-time greats in Formula One. Now, that said, he still has a minimum, another two years left in his career, but mm -hmm. I think it's really difficult to find fault with the seven championships that he's won so far. Yeah, I mean, you made a great point about uh, Schumacher being excluded from the 97 uh, World Championship, because if you go back and watch the Netflix uh, documentary, 
documentary on Schumacher that dropped a couple of months ago, they talk about that one at length and how, I mean, the way that they spun it was that, well, Michael didn't see it as doing anything wrong. He was just doing what it took to, to win and he didn't, didn't really realize until it was explained to him what his uh, egregious um, you know, action really was. And I mean, l- let's think about it. I mean, some of the things that Schumacher was uh, renowned for, I mean, there was no doubt that nobody could handle a car like him. Nobody was as fast as him. I mean, uh, he he really was on another level as a, as a driver, like all the greats are, right? But at times, he would drive a Formula One car in real life the way that I drive my Formula One car in when I'm playing PlayStation, right? So there's a little bit of difference. I mean, that incident with JV at, uh, at, uh, at Estoril in 97, that was one of them parking his car at Raskas at, uh, at Monaco and qualifying. That was another of them. I mean, th- there was plenty of examples uh, that, that we can, uh, that we can use. And I mean, certainly there aren't really too many incidents that you can point at, uh, Lewis Hamilton for. I mean, it's interesting too. I mean, Lewis came from a pretty humble uh, background. They really had to work uh, for, for what they got and they didn't really have a lot lot to, to, to go with. But I mean, that is similar to what uh, what the Schumachers went through. Because I mean, again, in that documentary, you hear Ralph talking about how they would sometimes basically go and scrounge old tires and parts and put them on their carts and still go out and beat the other people that they were racing against, which is, uh, you know, a testimony, I guess, uh, not just to you know, the Schumachers, but, um, you know, what they needed to do to, to, to win, but also the talent uh, that uh, Michael and, and, and Ralph, to that extent, uh, had to succeed in karting and also in uh, in Formula One. Okay, um, let's move on to the next story. This is kind of, um, this one kind of fit in between. This, this is still dealing with Lewis, and this is going back to our friend Fernando Alonso, who we were talking about uh, earlier on in the show. So uh, Fernando said not directly uh, racing with Lewis Hamilton more has been a missing point, his words, for his uh, career. I mean, as he said, he doesn't really feel that uh, he's missed out on a lot of things, uh, considering, uh, you know, especially in the latter half of his uh, career. But um, obviously he wants that. Anyways, um, Fernando told the uh, Beyond the Grid podcast, quote, I think with Lewis, we didn't have, let's say, the competition that I was looking for. We shared a team and that for the general people, this is the biggest fight that you could have. But in 2007, I think we were both not ready. Understandably, he was maybe not ready for the fight because he was a rookie and coming into Formula One and I was not performing at my best, not really integrated with the team. For sure, we had all the fights uh, together and all the stress together to fight for the championship and we were not well managed at the time. We finished with the same points in the championship, which you could see was a very big fight and an even fight, but I think we both could have done better. And then in the following years, I had a better package in Ferrari than him when he was at McLaren, so we really didn't fight uh, directly, and now when he switched to Mercedes, he had a better package, and we never had the opportunity again to fight together. So that's a missing point in my career, but obviously he's a legend in the sport, and he, like Michael, pushed to the limits because if you want to beat Lewis, you need to perform at your best, end quote. So I think this is an interesting uh, comment uh, from Fernando. I mean, certainly 30-year-old Fernando Alonso probably wouldn't have said that, but uh, 40-year-old Fernando Alonso, obviously with the benefit of having that life experience under his belt, sees this in a slightly different way at this point in his life and this point in his career. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, he won his two chips even before Lewis had joined Formula One. They they team up in 2007. They both finished a point back in the championship to Kimi Raikkonen. Uh, obviously, that was a problematic year for reasons we won't get into. He goes back to Renault. They have an uncompetitive car. He makes the jump to makes the jump to 
Ferrari finishes runner-up three times over the course of four seasons. At that time, you know, McLaren's kind of middling a little bit in the middle of the field. They're winning a couple of races, but they're certainly not competing for championships. And then just as just as Fernando's making the move to, <clears throat> to McLaren, Lewis makes the move to Mercedes. So it seems that whenever one of them has a great package, the, the other doesn't. So it is an interesting thought, and I never really thought about this, that the, we've never seen in all the years that the two have been, two of them have been in Formula One, with the exception of 07, we've never really seen a year where those two went head to head competing for a championship. And maybe we get that next year because obviously with the regulation changes, the field should be brought closer together. But it is an interesting thought. And it doesn't surprise me that this is something that Alonzo thinks a lot about. I'm sure that deep down, he feels like he probably should have won some additional chips. And I think it's tough for him as well that, hey, I win two chips. And then after that, Lewis goes ahead and wins seven. And and I struggle with the McLaren team. I finished runner-up three times with Ferrari. And of course, there was some disappointment there. But it's an interesting thought, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was interesting, too, the way that he says at the end that if you want to beat uh, Lewis, you need to perform at your best. And I think that's just the thing. I mean, as much as Lewis has had, uh, you know, superior equipment for for many, many, many years, obviously, he's also been incredibly consistent uh, as a driver. And I think that's part of the reason, too, just to maybe on another note here, that I've enjoyed this uh, this season so much, just the the, the battle between Lewis and the, with uh, with him, pardon me, between himself and Max Verstappen is due to the fact that, uh, you know, these are two drivers with two very good cars and they're both in very very good form and there's just more to it i mean the i mean there was obviously that rivalry with uh, nico rosberg but that was that was more of a personal conflict than more than a um a, a rivalry in, in my mind i mean they, they they obviously didn't get um get along together. I mean, Lewis was always going to be the faster driver and it always felt that whenever he beat uh, Nico that that it was just putting Nico back in his place and whenever Nico won, it was almost him saying, well, you know, I can do this kind of too. Maybe you're not as good as you think you are. I mean, there's obviously like a, a lot of mind games uh, in there, but certainly, I mean, we, we want to see the big names, the, the, the best drivers fighting. It just, it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, uh, especially uh, say for the example uh, of uh, Fernando and Lewis, is as you so correctly pointed out that when one had a good car, the other one necessarily didn't. And uh, Fernando certainly hasn't had a a good car for a good uh, many years. Okay, one final story here. Um, Michael Massey, the race director of uh, Formula One, said no regulator in the world will be popular when there is a title fight as intense as the one that we have seen this year. And, uh, okay, well, let, let's just read his quotes uh, before I start reading into it. Uh, Mr. Massey had to say, quote, there are some, were some wise words uh, about those that operated under a permanent stewards panel that thought that there was this perceived bias when there was uh, permanent stewards. The stewarding that we have now with all the four uh, pool four chairmen that we share, the pool of uh, driver stewards, and all of that, uh, by the way, all the chairmen meet regularly. We need to take a step back and remember, it's the first time in a long time we are in a real championship fight between two amazing drivers, two fantastic teams. As a regulator, last time I saw there's no regulator in the world that's going to be popular. So regardless, if you're a referee, if you're a regulator of any sport, that's always a part of the role that we fulfill. And from our perspective, that there will always be slight differences. But at the end of the day, the stewards are there to make those, end quote. So yeah, I mean... Maybe nothing uh, too earth-shattering in those uh, comments. I mean, nobody wants to make those uh, make those unpopular calls. I mean, but the, the the thing is, if something happens and they have to they have to do what they need to do. I think our our criticisms are 
are they doing it at the correct times? Are the people that are there, are are they the, the most qualified people to be there? I mean, Massey's comments seem to suggest that he's confident that they have access to the, the most experienced and the most knowledgeable pe- uh, people to do so. But that doesn't negate the fact that at times the, the the way that they've managed the sport and the decisions that they've made and some of the amount of time it's taken some of these uh, decisions uh, to make or to make those decisions hasn't, hasn't been optimal throughout this uh, this season. I literally have nothing to add. You've summarized that beautifully and, and captured all of my thoughts. Okay, well, before we sign off, uh, th- this is one. Uh, this is uh, might be a, a little bit uh, interesting uh, to answer. This is an email from Thomas Andre Riesla. He says, "Hello, Mark One and Mark Two. After getting into F one, I've been a bit surprised about the way uh, the community reacts to drama and inflammatory comments about the uh, that the team bosses and drivers make." As a lifelong football soccer fan, I'm used to the community players and managers making a lot of drama. This is especially apparent in derby matches that will create the most amazing atmosphere and matches. While you do have some people that take it too far, I feel that most people are reasonable and just enjoy the spectacle. I feel like we can embrace the drama in F1 between team bosses and drivers and condemn the people that take it too far instead of letting it uh, this take away from the experience. You've said yourself a couple of times that the comments from uh, Horner have taken away from your enjoyment of this season. From my perspective, he's just being cynical, creating storylines slash perspectives that keep adding to the rivalry with Mercedes. Rivalries are not a bad thing. Any thoughts? Best regards, Thomas Andre. Well, Thomas, thank you very much uh, for the email. Some interesting uh, points in there. I I don't think that uh, creating uh, rivalries is uh, is bad in uh, any way. I I don't necessarily have any issue with uh, one team principal maybe calling out another one. It's just uh, at my specific beef with the with the with Horner is just the 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 way that uh, you know the the pointed comments that uh, that he's made. I mean, he was given a warning this week by the FIA by making a a comment about the the rogue uh, marshal at uh, at Qatar last week, which uh, you know Max got penalized for for not lifting under the double wave to yellow. Yeah, you know, I I don't mind some of these things, but just some of the things that uh, that he said have just been way too incendiary or just way too off base. And I think that maybe had he not been as pointed in his comments after the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in the summer, I think that maybe this one comment that he made um, against the, the 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 one track marshal last weekend, I think maybe this one flies under the the the, the radar a little bit. I I don't think he he gets summoned to a hearing over that, and I don't think he gets a slap on the yeah and i'm all for i'm all for a little bit of drama and a little bit of fun that that's that's one of the reasons i think a lot of us enjoy sports and the narrative and the storylines but i think the comments this year at points have been to your point a little bit inflammatory and and i think the fear is maybe they've been inflammatory enough that they've been activating a base of non-supporters who enter the debate and enter the fray and really have no place being there and i think there's a certain segment of red bull and certain segment of max fans that feel that the FIA or that Formula One are working against them. And I think some of Christian Horner's comments, which haven't necessarily been substantiated or substantiatable, or you can't substantiate them, have have only further strengthened the noise in the empowerment of that base. And that hasn't been good. But I'm all for a a little bit of drama and I'm all for a little bit of hostility in the media. I think those are good things. But some of the comments coming out of the Red Bull camp, specifically from Marco and specifically from 
from Christian Horner have just been a little bit too inflammatory without being productive. And if you're going to make a criticism that's legitimate, that's great. But don't throw out criticisms that clearly can't be substantiated. Yeah, especially that one about the uh, you know the the, the the track marshal. I thought that one was just a, a bit. I mean, it was bizarre at, at best and conspiratorial. As, and it was interesting too. Some of the comments exactly. that uh, that uh, Andreas Seidel, the team principal at McLaren, said this week that uh, if they were in a similar position uh, fighting for a championship, they wouldn't be making uh, similar comments. So, anyways, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, that that rivalries are, are great, but you know, uh, words matter. <laughs> anyways, I love the uh, the the idea. I mean, when he's talking about uh, derby matches in soccer. I mean, there, there's nothing like a good rivalry match in the atmosphere that uh, creates. It doesn't matter. It's uh, in England, in Spain, Italy, Germany, wherever it is. I mean, uh, some of those rivalries uh, on the soccer pitch are intense and they're a lot of fun to watch and a lot of fun uh, to, to be at as well. Anyways, Mr. H, anything else to add to tonight? No, no, I've got a couple of questions, but I'll save those, I think, for next Thursday show. I know cool. you and I are kind of running out of time here, but uh, this was good. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining everybody. As always, don't forget about the contest. Uh, we'll be rejoining you at this time next week to get everybody ready for the inaugural running of the Saudi Arabian GP at Jeddah. That track looks exciting. It's coming together quickly. Um, and uh, we'll be joining you just hours before the cars take the track for free practice one and free practice two a week on Friday. Oh, uh, one thing I forgot to, to, to ask you. So you're in Dubai right now. What is the time difference between you and Saudi? Because I know that geographically uh, speaking, same. I think we're the still, same time zone. Still the same. Yeah, I think okay, we're the same time that's cool. Zone. Yeah. yeah. So who knows? We might actually be able to do that in in real time for once, or maybe pretty close uh, to it. Because we you know, we always complain that we seem to be out of sync with the F one news cycle. So maybe for once it'll uh, fall nicely into our lap. But anyways, well, sir, we're going to let you go here, and uh, I know that uh, you've got to get on with your day. So everybody, thank you uh, once again for for listening to the show. Thank you for joining in on the live stream once again. Happy Thanksgiving. Be nice to each other if you're going out for the Black Friday sales uh, tomorrow. Uh, maybe stay home and do it online instead if, uh, if if that's your thing. Anyways, if you want to get in touch, by all means, uh, do so. Send us a tweet at ScuderiaF1Pod on Twitter. If you want to, to get in touch via email, you can do so at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, have a great weekend. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.